0: Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. On this occasion, we're rewinding to a 2015 event with Finnish writer Sophie Oksanen.
1: It's a a pleasure to be able to shift gears slightly um, to to deal with some of the same issues in a different context and to introduce uh, Sophie Oksanen, who is a Estonian-Finnish author, as most of you know, and I think we might discuss later on the Finnishness and Estonianness of her, her work, um, and who is now one of the she has described herself as she's a best-selling Finnish author. Her books have sold in, in the hundreds of thousands all over the world, um, in many languages, and the best-selling Finnish author other than Tova Jansson, the author of the Moomin Trolls. Um, so she's somebody whose work has um, her four books have um, uh, have have made her name not only in her own country but internationally in a way that very few other authors from that part of the world have. Um, she she writes about as you know as as we will discuss she writes about um, issues of uh, her, her, her last two books and particularly the one we'll discuss today she writes about issues of Estonian history, looking at the effect of politics on ordinary life and on people's relationships. I mean that's you know, when you have a change of regime, when you live in a, in a totalitarian regime, how does that change your relationships to other people? And it gets into, uh, she gets into and under the skin of that subject in a way that very, very few other authors do. Um, I write books about history of totalitarian countries and what it means is how it, how, how totalitarian policies are created, how they're conceived and, and carried out. But this book, uh, her, her most recent book, um, when, do- when the doves disappear is really an analysis of that process from the ground up. How do, how do ordinary people live in these societies, um, and that's um, that's that's why I'm I'm so pleased to be able to to um, introduce her today. Do you want to begin by talking about the book or reading
0: from the book? I was I was told you
1: might want to read some passages from it or uh, explain I actually, it or
0: introduce it. I I, I, I I actually don't like reading my own books. <laughs> um, <laughs> So in 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 that way, I, I perhaps uh, it's better to talk. But on the other hand, there are moments when when uh, readers are, are actually wishing for the reading after we've been talking about the book because they say that is it, it, will I get nightmares if I read the book because the the themes might be a little bit upsetting. But uh, I um. I, then I always say that there's always a love story, so in a way, it cannot be only a nightmare. Well,
1: in that case, I will choose a passage because there was something that I found very interesting. So this is a um, this is a novel which switches back and forth um, between the 1940s and the 1960s. And would you like to explain that? In the 1940s, there are um, there are you know a number of characters who are coping with first the Nazi, first the soviet then the Nazi, and then the new soviet occupations of their country and they're 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 you know attempting to cope with that and then the book switches to the 60s in which we see some of the longer term consequences
0: uh, yes um in my previous uh, two novels which I also started dealing with uh, Estonian recent past stalin's chaos my first one and then uh, perch which is out in english as well um i'm uh in in the first one salin Cows, i 'm actually focusing more on Estonians outside estonia so it's it's about the immigrant identity uh, and how actually the past uh traumas are passed on to next generations also outside the country um and then perch uh, is mostly uh focusing on forties and nineteen ninety two just after regaining the independence, The history of Estonia and all uh, other Baltic states is, is special in that way, that they had the double occupations, two Soviet occupations, uh, one Nazi occupations, and they had been independent before. Uh, the World War II, so, um, and regaining the independency uh, in 1991. So, uh, But for when the Doves disappeared, I knew that I wanted to um, focus on the shift of the occupations because it's a huge theme and it hadn't been on spotlight in my previous novels. Um, and then uh, the 60s uh, was quite a special um, A decade for KGB uh, in in that way that uh, they had uh, new active measures. They were focusing much more and spending much more money as well to to, uh, projects um, and operations outside Soviet Union. And then also it was a decade when they started to worry about the international interest in Holocaust. They also started to worry. Why, uh, that, um, what if what if West Star, uh, Star is is going to ask them about what they are actually doing in their camps, and they still had the camps. So that's why they they um, they wanted to focus uh, or change the spotlight to something else, and they also understood. The German occupation is something that can be a benefit. It might be a bonus for them because it's also a way to justify the occupation in Baltic states because uh, if you tell people that those were very German-friendly countries, they seem less sympathetic. I mean, nobody cares that they had been independent before, that they had been occupied. You know, just they're forget just about seen it. as yeah. little Nazi yeah, states, exactly. Right? And yeah. that's why that was in that way. Sixties was in, in, important because they had new moves. And when you think about sixties in Western countries, the image of sixties is about freedom and liberation uh, and and about. Um, hippie movement, and in those countries it was, it was, it was something else. All right, let me go back
1: to the 40s, and this is a scene that I liked a lot. This is um, in the first part of the novel, um, and I, I'll, I'll explain to you what it means after I go on. So the murmur from the town hall square carried into the room in the hotel centrum, car horns and the shouts of newsboys framing Edgar's erect posture as he stood in his dark suit in front of the wardrobe mirror. Fervent but controlled, he raised his arm, counted to three, let it fall, then repeated the gesture again, counting to five, then to seven, checking the angle of his arm, making sure that it was straight enough and that his voice was energetic enough. Would he remember to leave enough space between them for the salute? So he's doing this. He hadn't been using the German salute when meeting his contacts. They were unofficial meetings and meant to be inconspicuous. This situation was new. He was unfamiliar with the protocol. His arm might cramp or tremble. He'd secretly practiced a little in the woods, too, when he had the chance, taking care to remember from the outset that Eggert first, this is who he's pretending to be, was left handed. So, this is a passage in, in which someone is teaching himself to do the Nazi salute. In other words, a man who has been part of the Estonian resistance, which he was up until then, is remaking himself for the new occupiers. And among other things, I mean, if, if you think about it, that would be something you would have to learn. You know, how do you do that and not look silly? You know, to um, <laughs> can, can, you know, can you elaborate a little bit on that? You know, this 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 people attempting to make themselves fit into their circumstances. Is this something you've experienced? Can you can you where, did, where does the idea for that come from?
0: Well, uh, I, I knew that I'm, I'm going to write about the, the German occupation, but I didn't know what, would, what the angle would be. Uh, then I bumped into an article by Estonian researcher Ivo Jorbe, um, and he was writing about the men who wrote the Soviet propaganda, So, which means that history, which was totally political at the time, um, they were the ones who were uh, forging the the history according to the orders uh, from KGB and uh it was it was a, it was a surprise to me uh to see that actually quite many of them had been working with uh, Nazis before so it seems like, and i right. had
1: have... so so the, so the one of the the main character really of the book one yes. of the most important characters is somebody who was a Nazi collaborator and then a Soviet collaborator. And we see him in the 40s practicing the salute, and then we see him in the 60s spying on dissidents, basically.
0: And yes. And, uh, well, um, as far as I knew, that uh, after, after Soviets came to pow- power after, after the German occupation, um, they killed everyone who had anything to do with the Germans. Or, so, in a way, there sh- they shouldn't be people who had been active in, uh, during the German uh, occupation and supporting Germans and who would have any power during the Soviet period. But it seems like that certain skills are beneficial for every occupier. This is this was what I was
1: trying to get to. Is, is there a... Is there a totalitarian, collaborative personality? Are there people who get along in one system and then in the next system? I think system? so,
0: too. I, mm. I, I think so, because there were, uh, there, there were people who had been working in, in German concentration camps, and certainly they were, you know, having a job in, uh, under Soviet rule. Um, and then those who were writing propaganda, of course it's possible that, you know, they, uh, the Soviets uh, were short in, in people with writing skills, uh, um, and they needed those who were, had been able to produce propaganda before, then new rules do the same job again. For example, the uh, most um, most uh, famous Estonian propagandist, Andrus Rolat, is a person who actually worked in, um, in secret police during the first independency. Then he was, he was serving both Soviet occupation forces and then the Germans as well. So in a way, whatever happens, he stays and he's always, you know, writing, writing the stuff for the new ruler.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, that's, that's, that's why I actually wanted to have uh, this kind of uh, character because he, well, those people existed and he wasn't the only one. Uh, there were plenty of them um those who had been well propaganda job is is one of them but also those who had been you know uh in 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 dirty work as well
1: you know then the the sort of the, his opposite character roland is a has almost the opposite personality so he's somebody who is in the resistance during the war, remains in the resistance after the war, eventually goes into hiding and buries himself in the Estonian countryside in order to escape the police. And he, but he, you haven't made him into a hero in some ways. I mean, he's very heroic in the earlier scenes of the novel, and then he deteriorates. And when we see him in the end, he's a kind of drunk. He's married to. He lives as a as a as a poor farmer in the countryside. I mean, you know, one have there been criticisms of the novel that it's anti-heroic? I mean, you haven't made the you know the Estonian resistance fighter
0: into the you know I don't know the the,
1: the, the romantic hero. Uh,
0: no, not not, not actually. Um, well, every Estonian knows. I mean the the story of Forest Brothers and those who who were in the resistance movement. It's uh, it's personal to every Estonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my own grandfather was in the forest. Uh, actually, my own my own family story is is, is a typical Estonian family story in that way that a grandfather is in the forest. The other um, brother was deported, and the third brother was a deporter. So, in a so way. So, you
1: worked with the, with the Russians?
0: Yeah. With the Soviet Union? Yeah. 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 So, uh, in that way, it's uh, to having all these different destinies in one family, it's, it's, it's normal. It's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and having the betrayal in the family, because that's what the Soviet system did, is that they wanted, you know, the local people to betray local people. Mm-hmm. They wanted to, they want then in. in um, In when uh, German and um, Soviet uh, armies were fighting in Estonia, it was actually you know Estonians mobilized to German army and Estonians mobilized to Soviet army who were fighting to each other, which is actually absolutely a fight you don't want to have. but uh, the the uh, and of course I I had a lot of, heard a lot of uh, lot of legends about forest brothers. Uh, Estonian kids used to play how to be a forest brother. Uh, so it's it's part of the national identity. Um, but every Estonian also knows that it it was a desperate fight. It was extremely desperate. Fight. And that they lost. And they lost indeed. And and um. I've I've read uh, old diaries uh, that uh, the original diaries the Forest Brothers uh, have, had uh, had been writing, uh, and um, actually it it was uh, somehow startling to me to see the despair of the fight. They were really desperate.
1: It reminded me a little bit of, um, there are a number of stories in Poland after the war, there was also a period of resistance. I mean, it actually didn't go on as long as, as, as in Estonia, but it ended by about 1947. But there were partisans in the forests, um, And the story of the ending of the partisan movement is very gloomy. You know, what happens is they, the bands disintegrate, some of them become almost bandits, you know, preying on the peasants for food. Um, some of them become drunken, you know, it 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 deteriorates and degenerates. Um, and the story that was very well told by a Polish writer, Tadeusz Konwicki, um who, you know, himself, partly in reaction to that experience, became a communist, you know, because he thought this was all a waste of time, it's all ended badly. Um, and he made a, he made a, um, you know, a transit, he made a sort of leap the other way, which, you know, he then regretted that as well but is that you know is is there an understanding in estonia you know the effect of the deterioration of the patriotic national movement how does that continue to weigh on the country
0: uh, well, um, w- one of the major blows to the resistance movement was, uh, was of course, deportation. Um, uh, Soviets had two mass deportations, one in uh, 1941, just before the German occupation, and then the other 1949. And that was really a heavy hit. Um, because they were deporting mostly women and children and old people, that is those who were actually, you know, helping forest Brothers. Uh, In the villages, there were no practically men left or or men uh, at the working age, so there were only women, children and old people. And uh, they deported them so that there wouldn't be anyone uh, anymore giving food to the forest Brothers, not giving medicine and clothing and so on. So, and many of them had their, you know, husbands in the forest, so it was uh, it was really like uh, uh, breaking the backbone of the resistance movement. But on the other hand, um, because uh, Estonia did regain the independence, so um, we cannot say that the national identity was destroyed. We cannot say that actually resistance they didn't manage to to erase the resistance totally. It wasn't armed resistance anymore. It was a passive resistance. And for example, um, Estonia, the language, uh, I'd say that, you know, the survival of the language is is a miracle. I mean, there's only one million people speaking Estonian. Mm -hmm. And um, already... um, and of course, uh, Finland as well is, is a small language, but as, as a representative of two small languages, I can say that you know, uh, the language identity is very strong. And already speaking Estonian or reading, it was a, it was books a kind of Estonian, resistance. Right? It is, yeah. and for example, uh, during the Soviet years, whatever book, whatever it had, I mean, even essays about nature, uh, there were bestsellers there were hit, as long as it was written in Estonian. Mm -hmm. And how, is there a, how
1: has this, because this is a story, um, it's about collaboration, it's about the end of the, um, in some ways, the end of the, you know, of the Forest Brothers, the the sort of degeneration of the independence movement. I mean, you don't actually end on a happy note, you know, it doesn't end in the 80s or the 90s, it ends in the 60s with um, which I won't, I won't give away the end of the story. It reveals something that happened 20 years ago that explains a lot of the characters' relationships to one another. But how is it? How, you know, how is your book received in Estonia? Is it understood as a? Because um, it's not a, it's not a entirely positive portrait of the country and its people. Or is is it? Uh, how, how do people feel about the stories about collaboration? Cause,
0: um I think actually you know the receptions of of when the Darcy Spears was even better than with the perch the previous one um and I mean they they had been uh, the best sellers every, every time they they come up and then there's a new generation um of readers uh, those who who are born uh, to the independent Estonia. And uh, they are actually reading my books also as books about their own family histories because um, not everyone t- told to their grandchildren and children what actually happened. Some some kept silent. Um, something uh, what, what is uh, special in, in Estonian literary scene at the moment is that there's n- there are not too many... Uh, novels actually about the recent past mm-hmm. uh, there's excellent history research with the new generation of history researchers they are very active.
1: which is interesting because you were just saying to me before we came on that in Finland it's the opposite there are yeah. lots of novels but no history yeah
0: yeah it's, it's totally <laughs> totally different in, in Finland people read novels about the recent past historical novel is extremely popular in Estonia, it's not um, non-fiction biographies and memoirs. Um, after regaining the independency, uh, there was a, there was a very strong boom. Um, uh, everybody wants writing memoirs, but um, I, I think it's going to take time that you know people start to learn. Write and read historical fiction. I don't think it's considered that important at the moment. More important is to find out what actually happened.
1: Yeah, this is a, there was a phenomenon in Russia actually in the in the nineties when there was a. It finally became possible to write history again, and what people really wanted to do was not really write history. They wanted to print collections of documents. They do this in Ukraine as well. Because, you know, you know, and a historian friend of mine said to me, no, we didn't want to know what the historian thinks of it or how he interprets it. You know, we've read enough interpretations. We want to publish the documents. And so there were these co- collections. I mean, now, of course, it's stopped. But there was a moment when, um, in, the, in the post-Soviet world, the, there was a mania for printing documents. We just want to know the truth. And then after that, let us make up our own minds about it, let us think about it. So the idea of interpreting it through a novel or through fiction, maybe you're right, maybe that comes at a later stage.
0: Yeah, I think so, and I also hope so. And of course, for an author, it's in Estonia as well. Plenty of documents, after documents. I mean, it's uh, important material for an author. Um, but in in that way, um, I think uh, Estonians might have been uh, in the first place a little bit, you know, were surprised that you know a novel. So in a way, um, they were happy though that fin- Finnish people read my books. Um, because then Finns understand Estonia better. Because uh, the the, uh, Estonian and uh, Finnish uh, uh, relations, uh, Estonia is the closest neighbor to to, uh, Finland, but because of the Soviet history, then um, there are certain things that Finns might not understand, actually, about Estonia, nor other Baltic states. And... uh, actually the when the doves disappeared uh, ends uh, ends to the moment when ferry line is opened to Finland. Um, and these countries which uh used to have a lot of you know export import all kind of traffic between those two countries um, they uh, Occupation meant that the uh, ferry, ferry line and, and that traffic was stopped. There were no tourism anymore, no trade anymore. And uh, in in uh, 60s, the first uh, first line was opened, reopened again. So and for Estonia, it meant that actually the uh, the window to the west was open. and that also meant uh, that's another reason uh, that KGB started to have, uh, they, they needed more stuff, they needed more people because that meant that the Westerners are coming to, to uh, Estonia and, and you need to, to check them. So in, in that way, it was active active moment for KGB.
1: Can you speak a little bit about Estonia and Finland? Um, your uh, your you know your books are, as you said, uh, you know, are bestsellers in both countries. And yet, and their and their books that, certainly the last two books in particular, but the earlier as well, are very much about the history of occupation and about um, uh, the you know the reaction of you know the the life under the Soviet Union. Um, and yet, Estonia and Finland now have very different political relationships to Russia and to that history. Um, the Finns are much more cautious and careful when they speak not only about contemporary Russia but about their relations to the soviet union in the past there 's this long um, you know tradition of so called Finlandization you know whereby they are um, you know they they are they are allowed to live as a as a western country but in some kind some kind of politically neutral zone and people are therefore very careful um Does that affect the way the book is read in different countries because these are very clear very in some ways, very brutal stories of occupation and how it affects people, Soviet occupation. Um, and yet these are countries which had very different political attitudes to the Soviet Union and have very different relationships to Russia right now.
0: Uh, well, if, if I talk about, uh, if I use the word occupation, if I say that uh, um, Russia is on the way to, to dictatorship, or if, if it's not already uh, then those kind of words are considered very bold in Finland. You can't say occupation. Uh, you you can say, but it, it kind of took time. But, yeah, and for mm-hmm. example, uh, if if I say that Russia is a colonialistic imperialistic country, which it is, then in Finland is considered like a very bold words, like a strong words. I don't think they are strong words at all. I mean, they are they are words about what's happening at the moment, and in other in. Other countries, uh, they are not considered like words that, you know, are extremely harsh, for example. I don't get that kind of feeling, but in in Finland, it's like we are still, especially in public public zone, uh, so in public world, politicians, Finns are not used to hearing that kind of words from a Finnish mouth about Russia. So mm. it's always considered like harsh or bold or, 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 or very brave, for example. So if, if Finns are used to the language of Finlandization, and that is, that is kind of something, because uh, the Finlandization was a quite uh, unique, actually, uh, political situation for Finland. It looked like a Western democracy, but in real life, the politicians and quite many others were totally uh, totally in Moscow's uh, leash. For example, our school books had to be accepted by Moscow. Um, that meant that we were... School books
1: in Finland yes. had to be accepted by Moscow. I didn't know that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's uh, also something that many Finnish people don't don't know that uh, my generation is is the one who who learned the moscow accepted mm-hmm. <laughs> history at school which means that of course there was no word occupation related to baltic states the spring of uh, Prague was uh was the counter action to to aggressive forces uh and and things like that, and of course, not very bad words about uh, Soviet Soviet uh, Union. So, um, in a way, we are taught a very soft language already at at, at school, and it does 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 uh, affect uh, the way. W- w- I mean, you can talk all kind of things in your own kitchen, but mm-hmm. in public, that's different.
1: So there's a difference even in Finland between what you say at home and what you say in the public space, because this was a characteristic of Soviet society, that you could say one thing to your friends and then you could say another thing in, in public.
0: Oh, yeah, and this, but this is... Uh, otherwise, Finns are very honest and direct. Finns don't do uh, small talk at all. They are very, like, direct and honest people, and also the rhetoric is very, like, direct, except when it comes to Russia. So in a way, in <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's the... That's the special topic in a way that, I mean, you can talk about whatever you want with your friends, with your at home, but when it's printed or uh, somehow out or public, then it's another story. And it's, it's totally, mm, totally different when you compare to Estonia. But the thing is that in Estonia after regaining the independency and the decolonization process started, it wasn't only about the legal system, it wasn't only about the land reform, it wasn't only about, you know, uh, creating a new society from the scratch, but it was also about the language, mm-hmm. because people started to talk about occupation. Um, um, before, uh, the Forest Brothers, um, were, were uh, when I was a kid, we were talking about those who went to the forest. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about. We didn't use the word deportation. We we said that those who were sent or those who were taken away. So there were. It was a in la- Estonia. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and after after regaining the independence, people decided, started started to talk about concentration camps, occupations, forest brothers, um, and deportations, giving uh, events uh, real names, not only euphemisms, not only you know. Um, writing between the lines. But in Finland, um, we thought that we don't have to do anything. So in a way, that means that we didn't have that kind of coming to terms with the past. So the Finns
1: didn't see themselves as a post-colonial country, which the Estonians do. So the Estonians made an effort to overcome various colonial complexes, which the Finns didn't do.
0: Exactly. And also, of course, there are plenty of people who were in power at the time, and who were uh, involved with the uh, finlandizations in an active way, and they are still in power. So, in a way, of course, they don't want to talk about it. And uh, we, have a, we have a list of names of those who were somehow involved with the uh, Finlandization uh, in, in a, on a Moscow payroll, but they are not public, and I don't think they are, the list of names is going to be public either.
1: Can I ask you finally, and then I'll ask the audience for questions, is I saw, now I don't remember where, an interview with you in which you used the word colonization to talk about the, the, the Soviet occupation of Finland, I mean, i sorry, of, of Estonia. Um, and you said, well, this is, of course, not something that in English, um, it's, not, it's not a concept we're used to thinking of. We're not used to thinking of the Baltic states as former, you know, former colonies, Um, Have you found, when you write for English audiences, when your books are translated into English, do you find this misunderstanding? Are people surprised by that as well, by that language?
0: Uh, It depends. I mean, English speakers are a very vast group. Yes. Um, I mean, for Irish people, you don't have to explain the occupation. Right. You don't have to explain that to Scottish people. It might be a little bit awkward for English... (laughs) There's there's obviously a difference, you know, in in a way that I can you know tell the about how comfortable you are with the theme. That's okay. You know, where do you come from? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in Mexico um, and in Latin American countries, I find it very easy to talk about all these recent. Uh, I, I was I was very really, you know I didn't. Um, I know that I had uh, readers in Latin America, but I, I was just—I wasn't sure why do I have readers mm-hmm. in Latin America, because I mean I'm writing very distant. Uh, I mean, Estonia is distant too, to, but I was there um, um, this year, and I understood that actually you understand our problems because you have the same problems. But mm-hmm. I hadn't actually thought about that uh, myself because I don't know. Enough about Latin American countries, but for example, the drug wars in in Colombia. Now they are they are going uh, go, uh, going through the coming to terms with that past, and actually it's not that different from any other war either. And then also the questions about the censorship and. Uh, and propaganda, corruption—all uh, these things—they are very so. In, in that way, it was very natural to talk about. Know, it's those interesting.
1: People. I was at a was once invited to a. It was some global scholars' event, some the, at Yale University, where they have a s- Institute of Globalization or something. And I was asked to speak to a group of Yale Global Scholars, and there were about twenty-five people. They were mostly in their thirties and forties from all over the world: Argentina, Mexico. France, you know, um, and they and I chose as my theme, this was right after my book about the Gulag had come out. I chose as my theme this this concept of coming to terms with the past and how have the Russians come to terms with their with their past. And I and I made that, you know, I made a little speech and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know how well this is going to be understood. There were no Russians there. And, you know, maybe it's too obscure and too specific. And then, of course, what happened, as you can imagine afterwards, is Every single person in the room stood up and said, oh, that's exactly like in my country. You know, here in Argentina, we are coming to terms with, um, you know, our era of the generals. And in Zimbabwe, we are coming to terms with our past. And in South Africa and in China and in... um, uh, in France, you know, with Vichy, and in Australia, with, you know, so almost every nation has, in its past, a piece of history or a, you know, either of an, having been an occupier or having been occupied or having had an experience of violent, um, um, of violent government with which they need to, 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 to think about. It. It's actually not unique at all to Eastern Europe. It's interesting, though, that, um, I mean, I very much had this idea that it couldn't travel, that it was specific to, you know, to the region. But you've had the same experience too, yeah, that uh, the, uh, the yeah. themes travel.
0: Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It seems like that the story of, 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 of the mechanism of occupation and the totalitarianitarianism. Mm. The, the, and then the thought the same.
1: processes that go into adjusting to occupation and getting used yes, to it. Yes,
0: yeah. it seems to be. Um, well, and I, I didn't understand that actually when I, when I started to work on, on, on these things, uh, partly also because, because of Finland, we have certain words or terms that uh, are kind of when you translate them to english then you understand what it's all about actually in a way that those finnish words might be a little bit like euphemisms sometimes um of course because of the history um but also because um, it was uh because I, I was brought up in in a finlandized world and and actually you know uh, the more I travel, the more I have also distance to that because it was ordinary life to me in a way so in 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 that way, I was also learned in both uh, or, or brought up with this language of euphemisms and uh, and also because uh, um, Finns are very determined to th- Think that you know, um, or, or we we lo- we learned the how to self censor censor ourselves, mm-hmm. and it's something that you know is also passing to future generations. But now I can see that you know the that there's a there's a generation gap as well. That younger generation doesn't understand the Finlandized Finland anymore, mm-hmm. and uh, but we have a lot of politicians who who are now re- very much acting like that. For example, two of our major party leaders said, we just had the parliamentary elections, that we cannot call Russia a threat. I mean, you cannot use the word threat. And and I mean, when party leaders are telling what kind of words you can... Use or not use about Russia? Then it's not their it's not their job. Actually, you know, we decide what kind of words we use. You know, we don't. We are not in, living in a world where party leaders are telling you cannot use that word. Use that word, a friend. You know, so so um, <clears throat> that's uh, that's like that. It's it's a blast from the past, mm-hmm. which is of course now because the situation is what it is. Then then it's even highlighted um but on the other hand there's a there's a bonus uh or the plus plus uh, side um uh, about the recent unfortunate events um that actually for the first time finland has been also making decisions that are not only uh, uh not only um Friendly towards Russia, and that's because as a member of European Union, so in a way we are in in in, 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 we are not uh, neutral in that way anymore. But this is the first time ever. So in but it's it seems like that there's anyway you know a positive positive uh, moment to have a little bit more backbone in 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 terms of the words as well but, but let's, let's see because I mean some of the Finnish politicians have been opposing the sanctions as as well and uh, also having um, doing things that might uh, look strange uh, from the outside for example having uh, Russian nuclear plant projects uh, and, and things like that Are there any
1: questions or comments that people want to make at this moment? I'm I'm blinded by the light, so there are two here. Uh,
2: Do you hear me? Uh, We could hear you. Hi. Um, I'm the Estonian ambassador in Ireland. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) So uh, I've also previously worked in our embassy in uh, in Helsinki. So I totally knew what. um, I knew your books. I knew what you were talking about. I I also know the thinking of um, Estonians, of course, and also somehow uh, the thinking of Finnish. So I had one comment and one uh, question. My comment is that I would very much agree with um, what you said about the perception of um, uh, Estonian people of your books. They are really uh, perceived as, um, um, they are perceived well, This, uh, although those characters are not heroes, everybody knows that there are people like that. There have always been people like that who some of them have collaborated, some of them have been more in resistance side and uh, and afterwards just uh, being hopeless, being uh, desperate, just, uh, yes, there have um, many suicides com- being committed and so on. So I very much agree that people in Estonia, they rather, I would say, they appreciate very much what you are doing, because I think you've been the maybe the most famous uh, uh, person to popularize Estonian history and everything about um, Estonia, uh, Estonian past in in the world. But my question was, uh, uh, do you see when meeting people in other countries when you meet them, uh, have you seen? Um, that your books have really influenced their thinking and understanding about our history and our thinking, and why Estonians and and other Baltic states and Eastern European nations are somehow uh, thinking maybe differently from the Western world, and have you also seen much of influence um, of your books? Uh, to the Finnish people, how they understand the Estonian uh, history and uh, and thinking? Thank you.
0: Um, I, I think so, uh, yes, but of course it's impossible to say, I mean, does it really influence, but I, I do know that uh, um, uh, Estonia has more tourism, <laughs> 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 tourism, uh, a little bit more tourism uh Because me, so in that way, I have (laughs) hopefully supported the the economy of the country. Uh, Because um, I I got uh, letters from readers who say that they had never thought about uh, traveling to Estonia. But after reading my my books, they, they thought that, okay, why not? And then they... Send me thanks that they, they had a great holiday and very interesting holiday, and, and so on. And it's, it's a great place to to visit, of course. so I've been on holiday to Estonia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, but also, um, perhaps a, that, that was surprising, actually. A comment I got from uh, at the airport from a Finnish businessman who said that. Uh, that my books have helped his company to, <laughs> to, to uh, create a better atmosphere to their company located in Estonia because there are Finns and Estonians working together. So you know, and, and anyway, you don't, uh, and Finns don't didn't always get some some things, and they said that in a way that. That books have helped to understand, and in that way, that the the workers are in a way closer because they understand each other better. That was a little bit surprising, you know. That literature can help to create a better better working uh, cl- uh, climate in, in a company. But uh, but of course, I mean, if if you don't understand everything that's happening or touchy points of of, of the history, then. It might create, you know, uncomfortable uh, situation because, of course, the other, other party doesn't want to explain if you don't have the feeling that you will be understood, in a way. Um, yeah.
1: Another person
2: over here.
3: <clears throat> Thanks very much two related questions. One is about the Russian-speaking people in Estonia and what the relationship is between a linguistically-based nationalism and how you accommodate that, if you like, slightly different identity and how that can be managed. And the second thing, I was fascinated by what you were saying about Finlandization and the kind of self-censorship and and the appeasement. I had no idea about the Finnish book um, being uh, okayed in, in, in Moscow. We've seen terrible things happening with revolutions in Libya and in the Arab Spring. and I've got an Iranian colleague who, who's living here but just says she's just terrified of, of, a, of a major conflict and she wants to see gradual change. So is, is it the case that maybe the Finns have a reasonably clever approach to managing conflict and that maybe the kind of strong... Um, it, 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 is, is there some virtue in appeasement? Is there some virtue in, in trying to tread very lightly, rather than taking a very strong nationalist approach to a threat like the Soviet Union? Uh, well, like one
0: thing about the small nations, like you know, 1 million Estonians, Easter, Pins, 5 million uh, the national identity is a question of, of survival. I mean, quite simply, if we don't speak our language, we don't exist. Um, if we don't support our national uh, identity, we don't exist. Uh, in, in both Finns and Estonians, uh, um, uh, uh, representing indigenous, indigenous people and all Finno-Ugric people, they are most of them are exti- extinct. I mean, if we don't support our our culture, then we just we just we don't exist so in in that way it's a question of of uh, staying alive then you, you when you compare for example nationalism in in Russia then it seems to be always uh connected to uh to uh expansion and uh the the in in that way when you talk about there's a there's a there's a negative nationalism uh that's that that is very destructive at least to other people and then there's a nationalism or 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 feeling of your own own national identity that is the question about uh, the sociable um uh finlandization um, the thing with the finlandization that it it, it was uh, it was a showcase it was a showcase for for soviet union to uh to uh, show the world that they can live in peace with a neighbor. And yet, at the time, they can keep it on a leash. And um, there are plenty of, um, oh, at least now, now with, uh, with the war in Ukraine, there have been plenty of uh, foreign researchers, for example, um, uh, recommending finlandization for Ukraine, but nobody's asking Finnish people. Nobody is asking, would you recommend that to, to Ukraine?
1: Well, finlandization was a form of... It wasn't a form of appeasement, really. It was a form of control. Yeah. It was yeah. a... It was, a yeah. it was, you know, it was the Russians saying, um, "We, we control your... You know, within a certain sphere, you're allowed to do what you want, but we control all of... Yeah. No, we control your foreign policy. We can, and that's in some ways is what Ukraine has been for the last 20 years. It has been, um, in in many ways, Finlandized. I mean, it's been a state which was nominally independent, but not really. You know, it it didn't really control its own gas pipelines. It didn't control its own foreign policy, um, and it was only when it began to try to do so that we that the Russians reacted with violence. I mean, so it's. You know the thing I find confusing about the Finlandization argument is what do you mean by that? I mean that's what we have now. You know, it's what we had until uh, uh, until yeah. until a yeah, year ago. Yeah, no,
0: that, that's that's a good point. Yeah, Finlandization in in Finland in in that that way that uh, uh, that um, everything else was. I mean, because there's no corruption in Finland. That's difference compared to. No, there's a, there's a, there are important differences. And, but yeah, but the and, but the idea
1: that. You know that, that ukraine's foreign policy and its and its politics are essentially controlled by Russia. that was the system until yeah. you know a year ago yeah
0: yeah but then again uh you you've, uh, you uh in in one of your articles you, you you read about uh Western countries not seeing what's happening in Russia because Western countries were expecting Russians to become like well they are like us, and that's why you don't think that they are different. Um, And uh, in in that way, that was because Finland looked like a Nordic democracy at the time. And it it, it looks now as well. And it doesn't look like, you know, Ukraine. And that's why, you know, it's, it's In, in that way, Finlandization in Finland was a very clever one because it looked like democracy. It had the facade of the democracy. And of course, in that way, it's, it would be absolutely uh, beneficial for Russia to have the same system in the whole Europe, in every country. And then so that it looks like everything is okay, it looks like it's beautiful and those are you know, w- rich and wealthy, wealthy countries. And yet at the same time, the control still stays. Right.
1: Other, other comments? Oh, I see another lot. So.
3: thanks very much um just on a lighter note uh, about your books um maybe a personal question I hope you don't mind um when you write your books uh, where do you find it most comfortable to write them
0: uh, the, uh, I, I'm not actually uh connected to any any place in that way that I couldn't write uh, and I do have uh, the uh, office sort of um, but it, um, nowadays I, I travel so much that so actually my my uh only concern with uh, with writing is is the time um or the lack of time, and I I don't. But what, what I can say that I I don't uh, write when when I go to festivals, for example, or book fairs, or, or things like that. Also because you know when you talk about your old book, then you know that's not something I want to have in my head when I write the new new one. Otherwise I'll be just repeating the old stuff. So that's actually the only only rule I have, and when i write i don't i don't uh, I don't go out at all so um, <clears throat> Hello um, I'm interested in your approach to
4: research and writing um, I mean how authentic do you try to have your detail i mean or and, and i'm interested in do you start a book with your characters who take you into events and then those events you research them or do you leave? You research at the beginning or the end? I mean, it's a bit confused. My question, but it's
0: a big issue, I know. Uh, well, uh, I have certain guidelines. Well, um, uh, when I start, but otherwise, I don't. I, I I don't gather the material beforehand because I don't actually know what I'm gonna what I'm gonna need because I don't know yet who my characters are. Um, so in in that way I, I write and research, write and research. So uh, and also because I don't know what's gonna happen, then in a way I don't, or I don't even know what I might be looking for. On the,
1: on the other hand, you don't, I mean, for example, in this book you have a you know this wonderful description of the German occupiers' apartment where you did. You know, is so happy. Yeah. Briefly, one of the characters has an affair with one of the. You know, where did the Germans' apartment come from? From photographs, or did you make it up? Or? Oh, there
0: was no photograph, <laughs> no photograph material, unfortunately, as, as far as I know, and I asked the, the researchers; they haven't uh, either. Um, but um, that's uh, and also something, something about about the book uh, is that I couldn't. Now there's a lot of material, but. Uh, New material coming coming out uh, all the time, but there was a lot of things i didn 't know and a lot of material i couldn 't have my hands on before. Um, I was reading a lot of newspapers uh, that that was uh, that were published uh, during the German occupation, uh, then also the secret service reports. Uh, one, of, one of those documents, after documents, uh, published uh, in Estonia. And it was ext- that was perhaps one of the fascinating documents uh, I, I read. Um, and then also um, different um, catalogs, because catalogs tell what's available and where can you get something. So catalogs are women's magazines as well. And it was interesting, actually... Uh, the press at the time was very interesting because it was so different uh, in uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. In the sixties. Uh, no, in in the um, forties. In the forties, during the German occupation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's um, uh, that tells uh, about how they wanted, for example, the other uh, uh, deal, uh, Jewish issues, and propaganda totally in a different way in th- mm-hmm. three different countries. So it was really like, people
1: make a mistake of thinking they're similar in the way they make the mistake of thinking yeah. Scandinavian countries are similar. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: in a way, they, they, that was actually clever because it was obviously for Estonian audience, obviously for Latvian audience. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, um, Estonia and especially Old Town is... is excellent in for for an author in, in that way that when you go to certain places you can see the same view your characters have been watching decades ago and the street where they had the german uh, uh german officers uh, having their apartments it was it was uh, it was it's the same uh road uh, the soviet officers had later on and uh also before the Soviet, Soviet uh, in, during the both uh, Soviet occupation. It has been, uh, during the occupations, it's the street of the officers because they had nice buildings there. And of course, the original... Uh, so
1: all you have to do is walk around Tallinn. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah. 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 And for example,
0: that, uh, that uh, uh, cafeteria, Cafe Moscow mentioned uh-huh. in the book, then it has been a cafe always. So mm-hmm. you can still see, see the same view from the window as they did. Right.
4: Right. Another comment. Hello, I'm I'm an Irish person living in Finland for 30 years, still struggling to learn Finnish. How many languages? Brave.
0: <laughs>
4: how many languages do you speak? I mean, do you speak Estonian, Finnish, Russian, German, English?
0: Um, I don't I don't uh, I don't speak uh a Russian. Uh I, I should have I don't know that now, but it was uh, it would have been impossible to uh to learn russian uh, i was born in 77 it would have uh, been considered a very strange moment because um, i mean uh, everybody in estonia had to learn it in- anyway so they would consider me like insane i mean voluntarily <laughs> learning um uh, Swedish. Uh, Swedish language is is mandatory in in Finland, and uh, then uh, French and German. Other comments.
4: Thank you. I I was just about to ask a question also regarding your linguistic prowess. Which which language do you write in first? And do you write in Finnish and Estonian or? start with Estonian and translate it into Finnish?
0: Uh, no, um, my writing language is Finnish. It's the usually authors write in in, uh, in in the language they have been educated, because then you know the grammar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Estonia, I've learned it, uh, by year, so in, in that way my grammar is, is not not perfect, and at the time it wouldn't have been possible to, to learn it at, at school in, in Finland. Uh, and it would been pretty impossible to, to go to Soviet school in, in uh, Estonia or it would have been a little bit strange solution. Um, but of course when, when I write about the uh, recent past of Estonia, my characters are Estonians mostly. And that's, um, in, in that way I'm actually you know, translating in my head their speech in the Finnish. Uh, and uh, also Perch and also When the Dust is a bit, uh, there are also plays and I've, I've written the plays myself uh, so and especially I mean when you write novel then you can skip the dialogue for example but uh, the, the play is all about the dialogue and uh, that's, that's sometimes a little bit tricky because Finns talk in a different way than Estonians um estonians uh, um have more like polite phrases and um finns are more direct and and that makes sometimes the and for example um um estonians are ad- addressing older people differently uh and finns uh, don't care about what your age i mean it's always always the same so in that way it was a little bit challenging to, to to write the dialogue in Finnish for 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 characters who are actually Estonians hello <laughs>
5: I think the Finlandization concept has been very popular in the West and very difficult to accept in Finland and and maybe it's a bit based on a, on naivety uh, about democracy uh, Finland was very, very aware of, uh, of Russia being a threat during, even during the CTV and years, and uh, very well aware that of the fate they escaped. Very uh, nearly uh, the fate of Estonia and, and the Baltic countries. Uh, nowadays, if Finnish uh, politicians uh, are use euphemisms. Uh, towards uh, Russia, it's part uh, fear and part uh, for economic reasons. In the, exactly the same way as uh, as the rest of the world uh, speaks uh, towards uh, of China, or because well, not wanting to to talk about uh, Tibet, uh, or or the way French uh, do not uh, condemn the 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 tribe trials of of, uh, of the former. Uh, Egyptian uh, president after they have uh, sold uh, rafale uh, fighters uh, well <clears throat> do you re- really believe that uh, that there is a democracy and that finland was specially uh, a sort of an exception in, in, in,
0: no i don't, don't. well
5: that uh, it was a fake uh, an appearance of democracy or that it's not something that is a, a continuum, uh, gradual. Uh, well, that...
0: um, well, Finland, Finland uh, is a democratic state uh, and, and a Nordic, Nordic, Nordic uh, uh, nation, but for example, and most of the elections can be considered democratic, but for example, one, there was one, one case when Gekkonen, a long term president of ours, uh, uh, he wasn't elected democratically, for example, which is uh, one well, which was because of the pressure from Moscow. They wanted to have Kekkonen. And uh, at the time, it, sh- it looked like that there were others who would have won the elections if people had had the chance to vote. So, but they wanted Kekkonen.
4: I wanted to ask you a question about um, language. You mentioned that Estonians depended on their language for identity. Well, you are speaking to a, an audience here in Ireland, and we are speaking English, and we would still consider ourselves Irish. So, the, what I—it just was—that's more a comment. But I think that the very interesting point about your your book—I've only just read *Purge*—is the idea that we have to remember and we have to forget. Like, there has to be a pragmatism. I think, in order to carry on. We can't live with grievances and victimhood. And I think some of your characters in that book, they simply heroically just strove to survive. And I think that is perhaps what uh, I took mostly from your book.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, um, there's always uh, a risk for witch hunt, and that's kind of one of the reasons probably why... um, why there are certain issues that, um, that are not likely going to be dealt in, in, in Finland. Uh, and for example, in Estonia, um, I mean, as I said, that there are a lot of biographies and memoirs. But those who were collaborators, they don't write their memoirs. Even though I think we should know, we should understand how, why they acted the way they acted. Because, I mean, some of them just wanted the kids to get to the university. You know, so there might be also regions that, well, that might be understandable. And if we don't understand those, uh, why the people act the way they did, then then in a way that makes us weaker in, in the future. Because I mean, they were people. They were not. I I don't like you know the uh, the banalization of the evil in in a way that they are non-human beings. I mean, people collaborate because they. Have their own reasons, whatever whatever they were. But any anyway, that was the one reason why. why even though he's not a, he's not a nice collaborator at, at all in my book, then I anyway wanted to have the story of a collaborator because those are the ones who are not telling their stories, and yet I think we should we should. If if um, I'm not in a way, Poland had the lustration, and and I would. Uh, there are some things I would like to see in in in. Uh, in other countries as well, like if you have been you know, active member of a uh, Communist Party, for example, then I'm not sure if you should be a teacher at school, for example. Those are, those are things because... Uh, that, that, but that, that's, that's true, that um, you have to know your past, but you don't have to be your past.
1: Um, I was going to say that, you know, about Ireland and and national identity, Ireland has a huge advantage over Estonian, which is the Irish Sea. Uh, (laughs) um, So, you know, the survival of Estonia is, is, I mean, even when you're there, you feel it, you know, you're a little in this little tiny country and there's this huge um, other nation to your right, you know, which is, um, which, uh, uh, you know, is very much a threat. So it's a little bit, it's a, it's an important difference. I think somebody else wanted to ask a
0: question. Um, I just have to ask you this: uh, How have you been received in Russia, and <laughs> do you feel safe? Uh, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, well, the reception. I have Russian readers, um, and uh, two of my books have been translated into into Russian. Uh, the other publishing house was in Saint Petersburg, and that was a little bit strange case with uh, with its uh, coming out. And then, the, the, when the house disappeared, uh, is by another publishing house, um, mostly, or at least they have an address in Moscow, but I don't know if anyone lives actually there anymore. <laughs> uh, but um, and their money is not there. Okay. I have a
1: book that was translated into Russian but never printed. So it um, exists. Yeah. But there are about five yeah. copies.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh but um and I, I do meet uh, uh Russian readers. Uh but there has there hasn't been a reception that is, you know, ordinary for books in other Countries, but I have the Russian reception, and the Russian. Now I talk about this is in 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 quotes. Uh, a Russian reception uh, means uh, that you don't have the official reception, but you might have uh, strange articles in uh, strange papers. Let's say it like that um, in in a strange way for example in uk uh, there's a socialist paper Morningstar, star which i didn't know much before they wrote an, uh, wrote a review of Purge. and um, then i asked estonian estonians what, what is is there some sort of kgb connection with uh, with uh, uh, with the paper and actually uh, there was yeah. <laughs> uh, there was but it was uh, it was uh, the review itself was positive but uh, they were they, uh, when they were writing about deportations. They were writing about Estonians deporting communists. Right. So in a way, it was a it was written uh, it was a pure info- disinformation uh, little operation. in 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 uh, It was an imitations imitation of a book review because it, they were uh, the reviewer was very angry about Estonians deporting communists to Siberia. Uh, which which is a very strange interpretations of of, of, of perch, but things like that have happened, uh, and also um, yeah, some other imitations of book reviews. Uh, uh, and for example, um, there might be uh, this uh, this imitation type of text uh, uh, saying that okay, this character is is Russophobia. And then giving an example from the text, but they are not telling that actually these are Estonians, two Estonians in the text hating each other, and not Russians. You know, so yeah, it's very easy to take that kind of you know quotes and say, okay, this is something that. And and when before the per- perch came out in in Russian language, uh, I asked for the for the proofs uh, to read before it uh, it. Uh, um, it came out, and uh, there was a very strange, uh, let's say, reading instruction. Uh, the it was uh, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, I think it was just delivered delivered to the publishing house. Uh, it was uh, it was saying that uh, it started with saying Sophie Oxenden is an author who is is claiming that all Russians are, are drunken pigs and murderers. <laughs> and well, we my agency uh, did. Uh, Managed to 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 get that out uh, from the from the book, but anyway, that was anyway like a reading instruction. So that...
1: there's some more questions. Was there another another question? No, no, no. Nobody wants a comparison of uh, you know Irish colonialism and Irish experience of colonialism and and Estonian experience. <laughs> One, one final one. Actually, we have to. We need to stop now, anyway. So we'll take one more.
4: It's me again. I just feel that um, the Russian occupation of Finland saved the language, because up until that, Finland would have been Swedish-speaking. And um, living in, as I've lived there now, teaching English during the eighties and the late well the eighties, when the Northern Ireland situation occurred. All my students were asking me, what's going on there? And I drew a picture of Finland and drew a part of Finland from Vasa to Turku and said, just if this had stayed Swedish, we'd have the north of Ireland. So, um, do you agree with this? Um, Finnish language being saved by the Russian occupation of Finland?
0: N- no, no, no. I'm afraid I cannot cannot, uh, cannot do that. Uh, it's actually uh, the... Uh, the um, uh, Swedish-speaking inter, in, intelli- uh, uh, intelligentsia of, of uh, Finland, uh, who started to think that Finns should have uh, the the, the um, written language in Finnish, because before that it was only uh, oral tradition, and uh, they were all Swedish speakers. Who who started to and they of course in, uh, our first uh, authors were so writing in Swedish, but they were strongly you know promoting that uh, we need authors writing in Finnish Finnish as well. Um, so uh, that was a, a very essential part of the national awakening in 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 Finland um, at the time. Um, the and actually our national poet Runeberry was uh was was uh, at the time uh, was also writing about the little and, and great wrath. Uh, one of, of of the two. Uh, well, um, in 18th and 19th century, there were a few periods in in our history where uh, Russians. We're terrorizing Finland in, in a very very bad way. Uh, so in, in that way, I, I wouldn't say that. And besides, it's uh, Russian culture has a kind of tendency of destroying small languages. So I, I wouldn't go for that. But uh, we can we can thank uh, the the Alexander, who uh, who again was uh, was a free minded. Uh, ruler in, in in Russia, because uh, because he was he was supporting of the idea of autonomy and, and things like that, and that is the reason why we have the statue of, of Alexander in, in in Helsinki. Right, thank you
1: very much. I was told to stop at one fifteen and it's now one seventeen um, and I'm, and I, I very highly recommend that you all go across the street and buy this book.